Hello everyone. Welcome to the grand finale of Coronavirus, The Whole Story. My name's Vivian Parry. I'm a science writer and broadcaster, and most importantly of all, of course, a UCL alum. So back in those dark days of March 2020, when I was invited to host this podcast, I thought we'd be doing it at most for six weeks or so. After all, weren't we all promised back then that it would be over by Tuesday tea time or at the very least by the summer? But here we all are in the third wave with rocketing cases. And as with everything, it seems that views about how to handle the virus are becoming polarised. But there is one thing that the whole nation agrees on. Coronavirus isn't done with us yet. Now, during the last year, the whole story, which I must admit I thought would reach a few hundred people in the UCL community, has had more than 80,000 listeners. The whole story has brought you reflections on the pandemic from every quarter of UCL and expertise from every discipline. From the ones you'd expect, like epidemiology, vaccines, intensive care and mental health, to ones that turned out to have just as important perspectives, including economics, education, anthropology, buildings, transport, disaster management, history. It's been a fantastic journey, and I suspect that those 52 episodes will make vital listening for researchers of the future. Fittingly, the theme of today's episode is the future. I've got four incredible guests and I'd like to invite them to introduce themselves. So let's start with Anne Johnson. Hello, good afternoon. I'm Anne Johnson. I'm a professor of infectious disease epidemiology at UCL and I've been involved in advising on various aspects of research in the pandemic. Deenan. Good afternoon. My name is Deenan Pillay. I'm Professor of Virology um, at UCL, Pro-Vice Provost International. I've also been involved with communication to the public and other scientists. Susan. I'm Susan Mickey. I'm Professor of Health Psychology at UCL and Director of its Centre for Behaviour Change. And I also participate in SPI-B, the Behavioural Science Group of SAGE, and also in Independent SAGE. And finally, last but not least, Andrew Hayward. I'm Andrew Hayward. I'm a professor of infectious disease epidemiology and I'm a member of the New and Emerging Respiratory Virus Threats Advisory Group, as well as occasional member of SAGE and, and other relevant committees. So let's set off Freedom Day. Was there ever anything so misnamed? How do we feel about the lifting of restrictions? Was it the right thing to open up? I agree. It's a, it is a misnomer. I think for me, the biggest word in all this is uncertainty. There is still massive uncertainty about how this virus will continue to spread. And although we have fantastic progress with the vaccine and we have undoubtedly reduced the link between infections, deaths and hospitalizations, we still have a, a considerable proportion of the population unvaccinated and the future weeks will depend enormously on overall patterns of behaviour in the population. So if we want to reduce transmission we do have to go back to all the things that we've learned in the last months about how to keep on top of this virus as well as go, go out and get our vaccines as well as go out 
and stay and, and isolate and test all the things we've learned. And we really do need clear messaging uh, on what people should be doing now. I want to come to Susan in a minute on the messaging, but can I ask Andrew, first of all, have we followed the science on this one in terms of the epidemiology? I don't think any government ever really follows the science because they have so many other considerations to to put into play. And they're, you know, obviously they're trying to balance scientific predictions about the potential hospitalisation rates and mortality rates, which are really very uncertain with impacts on the economy, with civil liberties, with all sorts of other political considerations. So I think whilst the science was clear that there is the potential for this to really cause a a very big problem, the unlocking, and, and it's, it's very clear that it will cause probably the biggest wave of COVID that we've had yet. What's, what's still really uncertain is the level of hospitalizations, deaths and long COVID that will result from that. Uh, and Dean, what about the variants? Because we're always hearing about new variants at the moment. We're worried about beta. How is Freedom Day going to affect the variants? Those who've been vaccinated may have waning immunity. We know that people are being reinfected after vaccines. And of course, every time there's transmission, there's a possibility for new variants to emerge. The other thing is that we, we've got into a mindset of variants being relatively fixed. But of course, it's an incredibly fluid uh, situation. The world is a mixing pot and it comes back to you know, we are only free of COVID when the world is free of COVID. And I think, therefore, the terminology being used is misplaced and we need to just be um, a little bit more modest about our role in the world and not to be a country that is now exporting to unvaccinated populations new variants. Susan, we've seen this called Freedom Day. A lot of the press are calling it Freedom Day, but actually a lot of the public are still very hesitant and there are really big divides in how people's behaviour is being affected by these recent changes. So how ready do you think we all are to start following this new advice? Well, the recent polls uh, suggest that about two thirds of people intend to carry on wearing face masks and enclosed spaces to socially distance where they can and feel very reluctant to go into restaurants and pubs and other shared public spaces whilst there's such high transmission levels. And I think that's very sensible. But one of the problems is that having taken away the legal requirement for people to engage in these behaviours that don't just protect ourselves, but protect each other and protect others um, more vulnerable than ourselves, it sows seeds of division between those who are wearing masks, those who are not, between different, for example, businesses and employers who are asking their employees to be wearing masks or not. There's a degree of confusion about what people should be doing, where, when, why. And all of this really undermines what is required for a very effective pandemic response, which is a collective effort. So let's now turn to the rest of the year. What do you think the autumn and winter is going to look like? And I want to come to you in particular, Anne, because I know the Academy of Medical Sciences, of which your president, has just produced a report on this very thing. T tell us where you think we'll be in the autumn. One of the things we've highlighted in the report was this uncertainty, again, about how much coronavirus would be circulating in the autumn. But alongside that, because we're all mixing with one another more and we're all out and about, we always get 
other respiratory viruses circulated in the autumn. We are suggesting we may see more than usual. Because we've all been locked down, we haven't been mixing with one another. That's stopped the transmission of some of these other viruses like flu and another one called respiratory syncytial virus, which causes infections, particularly in children. So less of that's been circulating. So the concern is with all those various um, issues, we may see a, a bigger resurgence of other respiratory viruses coming up this, this autumn alongside coronaviruses. And all those things colliding together would cause a very big pressure on the NHS. But in the report, there are a number of things which we can do to mitigate that. And we need to start preparing now, particularly with respect to flu. We have a flu vaccination campaign every autumn. And if we can really step that up, that would be terrific and get high rates of uptake that would reduce the potential impact of flu. And also the other thing we, we talk about is that we haven't tended to use tests for flu. We do have tests for flu that are like COVID tests. We, if we had testing for flu alongside testing for COVID, we'd be able to distinguish who had COVID, who had flu, and get people the right treatments more quickly. So that's a lot of what the report addressed, all the things we can do to prepare now and make sure that we are more resilient in time for winter. There's an interesting question here from Dan Osborne, who says, will large numbers of people of different backgrounds on university campuses in the autumn drive up infections, hospitalisation and the risk of new variants? Because classically, the autumn term, everybody gets terrible colds because everybody's coming back, bringing viruses from all over the country and all over the world together. Andrew. Yes, is the short answer to that. Of course, that will be mitigated by students coming from some area of the world facing restrictions about, for example, whether they might need to isolate. But I think obviously we have a very international student body and many people will be travelling and those measures to prevent importation of infection into the country are, are never 100% effective. We know that at young adults have a high rates of infection anyway and, and and of course people come to university to mix so so it will contribute to further transmission i think on the positive side ucl has been doing an extraordinary amount to make things as safe as possible through the pandemic and and a really important part of that will be for example access to vaccines and uh, I understand we're, we're working with the nhs on vaccination sites on site so that we can make sure that students who haven't had their full vaccines get those. So we can do a lot to minimise that. Now, there are still a lot of questions that need to be answered that determine how this year is going to play out. For example, should we start vaccinating children? Dean and Clearly, there, there, there have been a number of reports recently, and JCVI have put out their report. MHRA have approved vaccine trials have demonstrated safety, at least in older children. And of course, the issue is, is that balance between individual risk for children, but also the contribution of children to continuing transmissions um, across the age group. My sense is that overall, I would support extending vaccines to, to adolescents over and above what has been uh, approved recently by JCVR or, or proposed, which is about those most vulnerable children. It's a question of watch this space as well. And there's an active discussion, of course, about the degree of um, morbidity, whether it's acute or long COVID that may be experienced by younger adolescents. And Susan, the behavioural side of this is incredibly important, isn't it? Because children learn by mixing, they're missing out on an extraordinary amount. There are some social reasons 
perhaps more than medical reasons, why children should be vaccinated? I think one of the great tragedies of the pandemic has been um, how much schooling children have missed over time because of the high transmission rates that have been allowed to happen. And as you say, it's not just what children have lost out educationally, it's also what they've lost out in terms of social and emotional development. The loss from not being at school has hit those in disadvantaged communities much, much harder than others. And it has knock-on effects because it disrupts parents being able to work. It creates tensions about children going back to households with vulnerable people living there. So I think anything that can be done safely to reduce transmission in general, but especially amongst young people, should be done because they really have been the big sufferers of, of this pandemic. So Freedom Day is supposed to herald the return to normal. But what is normal and what is living with COVID and what does it all look like? Andrew, let's start with you on that one. What do you think? Well, I think normal will not quite look the same for a while in terms of, I think, some of the changes that we've experienced may become more baked in, particularly, obviously, with remote working and people realising what they can do remotely. So I think there'll be much more mixed models of that. I, I think we will get back to social mixing in unconstrained ways. And, and I think we will get back to situations where we're, we're not routinely testing every infection that we have, because it's not really sustainable long term. And, and the mortality rates associated with COVID in the long term won't justify that. I would hope that we see more of a cultural shift towards people not going to work when they have respiratory infections, which I think that before has been a, a very normal thing for people to do. So I, I do see more or less a return to normal, but I think it's not, it's not yet. I, I would doubt that that's until sometime next year. That's an interesting point about staying at home when we have a kind of horrible cold or something like that, Susan. Do you think that that has changed, as Andrew suggests, that we'll be much more circumspect about spreading our germs around rather than doing that thing of struggling on? I think we need to have a very different kind of safety culture across society. I uh, led a report for the Behavioural Science Group of SAGE that uh, was published two weeks ago, which is all about how do we develop a societal-wide safety culture to really embed and maintain these kinds of behaviours long-term, which includes staying at home when you're ill. But it does require all this social and material infrastructure around people's activity to make that work, with government, with employers, with every section of the society doing their bit to ensure that people actually can stay at home. We know even now just 20 to 30 percent of people with symptoms are staying at home, even in the middle of a pandemic. And many of the reasons are to do with people being concerned about losing their job because they're in precarious employment or not being able to afford on the very low levels of sickness pay we have in this country compared to other OECD countries. So all of these sort of infrastructures need to be put in place to enable people to do the right thing to protect themselves and protect other people. 
the pingdemic, as it's called, it seems to be undermining trust because people are being pinged multiple times. You know, children in their school bubble, all those kind of things. And somebody could find themselves off work for weeks. I mean, the, the problem with the, the contact tracing is important, but the most important thing in terms of reducing transmission is that initial act of isolating. And we do need to support people when they're self-isolating. What Susan said is absolutely right, that a lot of people don't feel able to self-isolate and it's difficult, difficult to access some of the payments and so on. So one of the big recommendations of the Academy of Medical Sciences report you mentioned earlier was the importance of supporting people who are self-isolating. In the longer run, and we need more scientific data on this, there are real questions about whether we can reduce the requirements to self-isolate in certain circumstances. For example, people who've been double vaccinated, we still need to understand more about the risks of getting infected and transmission with this new variant. But that is now, as you know, being rolled out for health and social care workers. So we did a lot more research on this. And I think actually we need, we really do, do need to understand much better the overall effects of these various interventions and how we keep the public on board with messaging so that they're able to comply with the guidance and that the guidance be based on solid evidence of reducing transmission. Now the pandemic and lockdowns have changed so much. And I was wondering whether you thought that some things have been for the positive. Let's let's talk about the positives first. Deenan. First of all, there's no doubt that there's been a component of the response which has demonstrated the collective will of the population. Very few things have brought the population in the UK together. It's been a fraught time the last five years. And I think that demonstration does identify what is possible in a sort of thinking about public health and, and beneficial. And the second is, I do think there's been a far better uh, communication and understanding of science within the population. Of course, it, there are always pros and cons of that, and there's always different arguments, but it does set the scene. We need to take advantage of that better communication, better understanding with the public, and that will be important for scientific advances in the future. I mean, who'd have thought genomic sequencing would be on the front pages every day? Susan, what are the positives for you? The blended ability to work from home and traveling in. I mean, my research team, people come from Reading, from Brighton, from Cambridge. It's no way to live a life. It's bad for your mental and physical health. It's a waste of time and it's very bad for planetary health. So I think thinking about local working hubs where people can have interactions with other real life human beings without having to travel a lot is really helpful. And also, I think, blended teaching. Surprisingly, although one really needs the interactions, the actual process of teaching has been really effective. Being able to use the chat function alongside asking questions and, and discussing on screen, and also being able to go flexibly into very small groups. And so it's been much more inclusive in involving people who are much more reticent uh, to speak out in large groups. So I, I hope that we keep that and also uploading teaching materials in small accessible chunks in advance that people can go back to and, and refresh. So I think there have been real positives that we can build on in the whole teaching process. Andrew, a positive for you. For me, one of the positives was for a brief while, we managed to end homelessness with the Everyone In campaign. We did show 
a really internationally excellent response to homelessness. And we learned a lot about, you know, how important it is to give people the dignity of their own space, their own room, not only to protect them from COVID, but also to be able to work effectively with people and help to get them more settled. Unfortunately, that seems to be unravelling very fast with MHCLG guidance yesterday saying it's fine to reopen these communal night shelters, even though you might need a double vaccination to get into a nightclub, it's fine for a person with chronic illness and no vaccination to go into a, a communal night shelter. So I think some of the benefits may not last. I don't want to dwell too long on the negative, but I wanted to put in particular to Anne a question about the NHS, because the NHS in, in one sense has been magnificent in its response, not only just sort of on the fly, uh, reacting very, very quickly to all sorts of different circumstances. But it has had an extreme negative impact on the NHS in terms of burnout of staff, in terms of waiting lists. How long do you think it's going to take for the NHS to recover? It's going to take a long time. I, I don't think I can answer your question about how long, but we have very long waiting lists. And obviously, the extent to which the length it takes to the NHS to recover is going to involve not only how much we invest in it, and when I say invest in it, that's financial, but it's also the support we give to staff to further their you know, ability to cope with the stresses and the burnout, to continue to train them, to build, to, to change some of the working practices so we use the services we have in ways that will improve health in the most efficient way possible. We must seize the opportunities in the newly structured NHS to invest wisely, to think about how we plan, not just for individual health or individual sickness very often, but about population health and how we optimize our resources. We build in, we've been saying it for years, we don't do it. We build more into preventive services. We integrate care. We work actively to reduce inequalities, something which has been really painted writ large in this pandemic. And part of reducing inequalities is reducing inequalities in access, um, inequalities in, in time to getting diagnosed and so on. So these, we could see these as intractable challenges. We could also see them as a warning of the ways we could work together for the future to think about how we deliver health and social care in a way that will improve population health and reduce inequalities and deliver the amazing advances we constantly see in biomedicine, but also in the social sciences and the data sciences to improve the health of our population. Time for the audience questions. And there have been an absolute ton from you all. The question that's most popular of all is, Crystal ball time. What do you think the situation will look like a year from now and five years from now? So, Dean, and what do we see in, in a year and five years? I, I, I think it's, it's not about the question of whether this corona, COVID-19 will still be around. I expect there'll be circulation of this virus where until the world is clear of the virus, it will continue. So what I'm imagining is that in a year and five years time, we would have a different level of tolerance of constraints. 
whether it is infection control, whether it's the way we run our lives, whether it's travel, I think there's some things that are not going to go back to normal. And I think that's that's where we will be as long as, of course, these viruses are in the world. And I, I can imagine that these viruses will still be in the world in five years time. Um, here's a question from Alice Pink. In your opinions, which countries have handled the pandemic well? And what do you put this down to? Susan, I'm going to go to you on that. I mean, what's very obvious is that countries in Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand have done very well. Countries in Southeast Asia have obviously had the experience of SARS, have known what works. And one of the interesting things is that those countries who actually imposed restrictions quickly and hard have done best in terms of not only health, but also in protecting the economy and also in terms of uh, civil liberties. Very interesting paper comparing those who did go for a sort of elimination strategy versus those who didn't and, and find those advantages in those who did. And I think we really need to learn from these other countries. And unfortunately, our country has done really very badly given you know, a, a very good NHS, very good research basis in terms of health illness and now long COVID. So I would say, look overseas and learn the lessons. And what countries do you think have done particularly well? This sort of obsession with who's done better and who's done worse. I mean, clearly we, we in this country have had a, you know, a bad pandemic and we've had a very high death rate. We've now got a very high vaccination rate. So we're not going to know, I mean, maybe for a decade or more, what the real outcome of this terrible pandemic is going to be in terms of long-term impact. And what seems like a great success one week or one year may not seem like such a success this year. And, and so I'm very resistant to producing any kind of league table at this time. The main message is the one Susan's always said, we have to learn from each other about this to build resilience in the global health community and between nations. If we are to avoid these kind of things in the future. And the most important thing is, is to try to stop them happening in the first place. Let's ask now another question, which is about lockdown. When do you think lockdown, Andrew, might occur? What's the level at which you think, actually, there are too many cases, we have to lock down? I can't see it locking down again unless the hospitals are about to collapse, have to turn people away. I mean, we've never really had a societal discussion about when we think about living with COVID, essentially we also mean dying with COVID and, and how many deaths we're prepared to accept for our liberties. And I think that is something to think about whether, you know, in a normal year we might go with 10 or 20,000 deaths from flu. How, how many, you know, what are we prepared to trade? It sounds very mercenary, but I, but I think as a scientist, you're sort of trying to think about calibrating these risks and benefits. And it's a very difficult thing, of course, to discuss openly because people will say, well, you know, one death is too much if it's somebody you know and love. So it's a very difficult thing to openly debate. Yes. Although, of course, governments take decisions all the time or fail to take decisions all the time that lead to death. And that's always a balance between the deaths and the economy. So it's, it's nothing new. And I think it merits debate. You know, we used to have many, many more deaths on the roads. And we didn't sit around and say, 
how many deaths do we think is an acceptable number of deaths to have on the roads each year? Let's have a national discussion about this. What we did was did the research and find out what are the effective mitigations that will reduce those deaths. And that included speed limits, included very strict fines for drinking and driving. It included wearing seatbelts. And I remember when the idea of compulsory seatbelts were brought in, there was massive resistance. You know, our civil liberties are being taken away from us. Now nobody bats an eyelid about wearing their seatbelts. And the number of deaths have plummeted on the roads and also the number of long-term disabilities plummeted on the roads. So I think there should be much more national consultations and conversations, but they should be about what mitigations can we put in place now to really bring down deaths, long COVID, and all the symptoms and illness and mental health problems that go along with it, rather than thinking we have to live with it as if we're not going to have radical changes in our society. I think we should think big. Thank you. I want to ask you now about conspiracists, because this has been an ever-present part of this pandemic. How difficult is it uh, dealing with conspiracists? I think it's it's a really important question, because without trust of the population, public health measures of the sort that we've had to impose are not going to work. And we see it in many different ways. There are many different sort of ways of uh, conspiratorial ideas. But we've got to remember that if we just focus on vaccination, that we mustn't get lulled into thinking that anyone against the vaccinations are anti-vaxxers and don't believe in vaccinations. There's a large group of people still, and there's still a big inequity by, by ethnicity with regard to vaccine uptake, unfortunately, that are hesitant and they're hearing different stories, and we need to make sure that the messaging and the trust um, that is engendered to to stimulate vaccine uptake is really supported, that we have different ways of messaging, dealing and understanding people's views. It needs, of course, control of social media, which is sort of exponentially used to spread this, but it needs a government ultimately that can be trusted. Susan, how about you on, on this, on conspiracies? How has that affected you? I think the key thing is not to give give it oxygen. And that means ensuring that people have access to information and knowledge that they can understand and that they can engage with. And that means several things. It means ensuring that the people delivering that knowledge are respected, are trusted by local communities. So that will vary according to kind of community. It means allowing two-way conversation so that it's not just about delivering information, it's about listening to people's concerns, responding to those concerns, setting up situations where people feel comfortable doing that. Where all those things have been done, they've been very effective, but just not enough has been done, or a bit's been done and then it's stopped. So I think we need a national concerted effort, and it does involve engagement of communities at all levels, and what's called co-development or co-creation of the strategies rather than cabinet office or whoever deciding on a comm strategy, getting out there and working with people on the ground to really think about what messages delivered in what ways, at what points, by whom are gonna be the most effective for those communities. This is something actually that the SPIB, the behavioral science of SAGE has said month after month after month in their reports, but we still yet to see this happen in any systematic way. 
Dean, a very quick question for you. Uh, interesting, practical question from someone here. If I were to catch COVID after having been doubly vaccinated, would this strengthen my immunity or weaken it? That's a really good question. I think what is clear is that vaccination after natural infection does really significantly boost your immune system. And I take the view, and, and whilst we await uh, more data about the reverse, it, it follows that basically the more exposure your immune system has and is boosted and you broaden the so-called repertoire of um, of your immune responses, then the better you will be protected. We, we wait to see. What I would not do is encourage, yes, if you're vaccinated, go and expose yourself consciously because that's going to help you. I would never do that because, of course, we're seeing some vaccine failures. And of course, vaccine effects, you know, immunity do wane. I mean, I, I was lucky as a healthcare worker. I got my vaccines more than six months ago and I, I did a react test the other day, an antibody test. I had such a faint band on that that I thought bloody hell you know I've, I'm almost not protected anymore if one thinks of that so basically as a practical advice do not go and get yourself exposed on the basis that's going to increase your immunity um, I'd far rather strategy of, of booster vaccines as research provides the evidence. So another tricky question for you which is if you've been double jabbed and then you get COVID do you need a booster? Anne, Anne or Andrew any ideas? Uh, I mean, you would expect a natural infection to act as a booster to some extent, although you might be asking yourself why you've had an infection despite the fact that you were immunised. Um, I'd like to see some more immunology. I mean, we, you know, these are all the things we have to study in the long run. That's ducking it, I know, but we don't have the answers. And I, I constantly say we need to be absolutely clear, not just about what we, well, about what we don't know and what we know, what we need to know more about. Dina's right, this is a, a virus that's landed in a completely susceptible human population. And interestingly, most of us, you know, are acquiring immunity to common respiratory virus infections from the day we're born. And suddenly a whole bunch of us have been exposed to this in adults, which is very unusual. And that's across society. So how this is going, how this is going to play out in the longer run as people is, I think, very uncertain. But right now, we are on a very, remain on a very steep learning curve, despite all we've learned for the last year. Will we ever know the origin of SARS-CoV-2? All I'd say, and we're aware of this debate and, and, and so on, all I'd say is the last 30 years, every 10 years, there's been a new coronavirus that has come originating in animals in whatever way that happens. So it's predictable. And uh, therefore, we should be predicting another one in 10 years time. The key issue here is, is whether it was manufactured in a laboratory or not. And I don't know if anyone saw Tony Fauci's discussion today in Congress, but it, it seems to me very unlikely that this was artificially manufactured when, in fact, we know nature is a very good manufacturer of these cross-species infections. I've got one final question for you all. How has UCL done during this pandemic? Andrew? I think UCL has come into its own. It's made, maybe not been quite as high profile as Oxford, for example, in some aspects, but the interdisciplinarity that we've brought to this has been really good. You know, I think we've been very well represented on advisory boards, influencing policy, influencing 
practice communicating to the public to explain this terrible problem. So I, I'm pretty proud of what UCL has done. Uh, and I think UCL's also had a, a really strong response as an organisation for how it's managed the, the personnel issues and supported people through the pandemic and students through the pandemic. We were really pleased to get some of the most positive feedback that we've yet had on teaching. So I'd give us a pretty good mark. Susan. Well, I, in answering this, I'd pay tribute to David Price's um, vision of the grand challenges he set up some 10 years ago. And that has supported uh, throughout UCL different disciplines and faculties to come together to really address the big challenges facing the world in, in six different themes, but also thinking about how to translate that multidisciplinary expertise to policy and practice in the real world out there where it can be used. And so I think that's put UCL staff, including myself, in a really good position to be able to really roll our sleeves up and get stuck into trying to help, both in terms of our scientific research, but also in terms of our communication and other translational activities. Tienan. In typical UCL fashion, it's a whole eclectic mix, a large mix of different people and um, I think a lot has been positive about that. I would just put a ca- add a caveat, though, is that I think what this pandemic has identified is how however good science you have measured traditionally, what is needed to actually have impact. And I think UCL is not alone in not being strong enough in terms of engagement with government to actually influence government, bring rationality to government. I think that's not just a UCL issue. I think that's, a, that's going to be an issue for how universities function and what the role of universities are post-pandemic. But uh, I'm very pleased to be part of UCL and that no one's a dis, you know, a, um, a stopped me working or sacked me from saying various outrageous things in the press. Marvellous. Well, thank you to all the panel. Just from my own point of view, I think UCL has been magnificent during this pandemic. And I think it's the collaborative nature and the way that so many disciplines have come together to look at coronavirus, the whole story. So I suppose that all that there is left for me to say now is that you've been listening to coronavirus, the whole story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited, and can I give them an enormous plug here, by the very splendid Keris Bradley, and wrangled every week by the wonderful Steph Lumuaco. So thank you to both of them. I was joined today by Professor Dame Anne Johnson, Professor Dean and Pillay, Professor Susan Mickey, and Professor Andrew Hayward. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL, there is a fantastic back catalogue. And so you can subscribe wherever you download your podcasts, or you can visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you for the very last time by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights, and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in every week and I hope to be with you again soon for another project. But for now, goodbye.